Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. This is episode 11. Clinical Athlete is a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find more information on being part of the community as well as valuable continuing education on the website, clinicalathlete.com. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. I am joined by Michael Ray, a doctor of chiropractic and owner of Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic in Harrisonburg, Virginia. What's up, Mike? Hey, how's it going, Quinn? It's going well. I'm getting a lot better at pronouncing your clinic's name. Yeah, it takes a little bit of effort on that one. <laughs> and we're also joined by a very special guest, professor and orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Ian Harris, who is based in Sydney, Australia, and a published researcher with interests in surgical outcomes, the quality of surgical research, patient, patient satisfaction, and clinical trials in orthopedics. Dr. Harris, first of all, thank you for being on the show with us. Can you tell, we like to joke around, can you tell our six listeners a little bit about your background and, and what led you to where you are today? Sure. Um, so I'm a Sydney native, so I, I grew up here and uh, uh, I always wanted to do orthopedics, so uh, so I, I got into that. I did some, uh, I did a year in the US, I did some time in Europe, I, I did most of my training in Australia. Um but I really just started off as an average uh, orthopedist. You know, I was uh, fixing fractures and uh, replacing joints and doing arthroscopies, and I even used to do spine surgery as well. But it was uh, after a few years of practice, um, I really wanted to get into research and, and, and understand a little bit more about the evidence behind surgeons who could do that, who could critically appraise the literature and they could tell which studies were good studies, which studies were bad studies. And I didn't have that ability. And um, so I started learning. Uh, I started learning about, uh, you know, we call it evidence-based medicine, but then it was clinical epidemiology. Uh, it was really the just the science behind medicine. And I think I, I, I'm kind of like, wanted to be more a scientist than a, than a doctor. Um, but that was interesting because the more I studied um, the true effectiveness of what we did and the more I dug down into the research behind orthopedic treatments, the more I found that either that evidence wasn't there or it wasn't very good. And I got struck with this sort of, uh, uh, strong possibility that a lot of the stuff I was doing didn't work. Um, and I started generating some of that evidence myself and doing randomized trials. And then I took on a more uh, academic role. And I've been doing that for the past, say, 10 years or so. Um, and I just think that, you know, and I've been a bit of a you know, a fairly conservative voice or a non-operative voice in the orthopedic field um, because I think orthopedic surgeons and doctors in general, because I don't just confine my comments to orthopedic surgery, need to be a little more, uh, um, I don't know, uh, open their eyes to what's really going on. You know, they, they need to uh, be a little bit more critical of themselves. Uh, it's easy for us to criticize others, you know, uh, it's uh, very easy to criticize uh, homeopaths or alternative medicine practitioners, you know, we, we 
sit on our pedestal and say, well, you know, you don't have good randomised trial evidence that what you're doing works, therefore it's all rubbish. And then we carry on without the same evidence, you know. Uh, we don't apply the same standards to ourselves. So I guess that's the long answer of what got me where I am. So I'm still practising. I'm practising orthopaedic surgeon. I, I um, have a practice in Sydney, but I also have a very large uh, academic practice um, where I uh, do lots of research. Well, and one of the more recent papers that you were involved in was the clinical practice guidelines for orthoscopic surgery for degenerative knee arthritis and meniscal tears. That was published in the British Medical Journal in 2017, in which one of the key points that you and your colleagues made was a very strong recommendation against the use of arthroscopic uh, surgery in nearly all patients with degenerative knee disease. Why do you think that practice is still so common? Was there some type of initial evidence to to back up the claims or, or to validate the use of that type of surgery? Why, with mounting evidence, it appears to the contrary. Why, are the, why is that type of treatment still being used? Okay, so that's that's a good question. And um, while now we've had um, lots of high-quality evidence from different places all pointing in the same direction, um, orthopedic surgeons, I guess, naturally have resisted change. I mean, most professions don't like to be told that what they're doing doesn't work, and they, they tend to be naturally resistant to that. But um, it's been uh, uh, convincing evidence on a large scale for a long time that we're wasting everybody's time with this and money. Um, and even though the orthopedic surgeons have changed their story along the way, I mean, we used to do knee arthroscopy for arthritis. That was shown to be not effective, and so a lot of orthopedic surgeons said, well, we don't do it for arthritis, we do it for the, for the meniscus tear. And then more evidence came along and said that it doesn't work for meniscus tears. And then the surgeon said, well, we don't just do it for the meniscus tear. We do it for the mechanical symptoms, whatever that means. Um, but then more evidence came along and says, well, arthroscopy doesn't help for mechanical symptoms. And now it's getting harder and harder. In the meantime, is what's interesting. So there are now reports coming out. We just published a few weeks ago on um, the rates uh, here locally. Um, the state that I live in is a population of about uh, 7 million, and we've shown that the rates of knee arthroscopy in people aged 50 and over, which means that they're largely degenerative uh, uh, knees, um, have roughly halved um, since the high of uh, 2011. And so the rates in Australia and uh, other countries, uh, Norway is another one that's recently published. A lot of countries now are showing um, big decreases in the rates of knee arthroscopy. However, other countries are showing no change. Um, and I haven't seen any evidence from the US yet that the rate is decreasing. Um, so this goes back to your question is, well, why? We have to ask ourselves, you know, why do surgeons 
do this operation despite this evidence? Well, largely the reason is that surgeons believe it to be effective. Um, they don't believe evidence that's been generated by someone else in another country. Um, and there is a problem with surgeons not really having a good grasp of, you know, critical appraisal and being, under, being able to understand levels of evidence and being able to appreciate their own biases. So unfortunately, a lot of surgeons are led by this uh, very simple uh, uh, logical fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc, which means it follows, therefore it is because of. And people with degenerative knees don't have the same amount of pain every day. They have good days and bad weeks and good months, and it's a little bit all over the place. And so if you see a patient with a degenerative knee who is particularly bad recently, they'll come to you and they say, yeah, my knee is always playing up a little bit, but now it's really bad. If you do anything to that patient, it's going to be better again in a few weeks. It's, it's just one of the ups and downs. It's the natural history or regression to the mean. So what you've got to do is you've got to get your arthroscopy in there before they get better, and then at some time later they're going to say, yeah, my knee's settled down a bit now, and then you'll say, yeah, because that's due to the arthroscopy. Um, and people believe that. They see it all the time. And so it's a bit like people who have their own little cure for the common cold. They'll say uh, it works every time um, because all the colds that they've treated got better. Um, and so it's it's this kind of evidence level that's that's driving it. However, there are differences between countries. You're seeing drops of, in the rates of knee arthroscopy in some countries, but not others. And um, I think there's other things at play. Surgeons will change practice based on um, what their friends do, what their colleagues do, what they see as the norm. And if doing an arthroscopy for a degenerative knee is what everyone's doing, then that's what everyone does. If you know what I mean, it becomes kind of like standard practice. Um, and, uh, and that you need something to break that cycle. You need something to change that. You need someone to step in and say, hey, we're doing it all wrong. Listen to me. Look at this. Someone else picks it up and then they change their practice. And then people that they work with change their practice and it spreads uh, socially. It's not like somebody produces some evidence somewhere in the world and then the next day everybody stops doing the operation. It doesn't work like that. Um, it's, a, it's a social change, but it seems like it hasn't taken up much uh, in the US. I haven't seen much evidence that the rates are falling over there. What do you think are some of the hurdles that we need to overcome? Is it, is it simply shoving the evidence in people's faces repeatedly over and over and shouting from the rooftops? Or is there some type of system change that needs to take place? Yeah, because there's, there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can do it by education, which is what I've been trying to do, you know, traveling around the world telling people that this doesn't work and explaining to them in, in logical terms why um, they may be wrong. Um, and so that's one way of doing it, and that's kind of like the nice, friendly, come-with-me way of doing it. Um, but the other way is, is sort of top-down or uh, uh, legislative ways, um, and there's been a lot of talk about uh, removing the rebate 
you know, making it so insurers don't pay for it um, or making it so that certain rules have to be, uh, certain requirements have to be met before it's paid for. Um, you know, these, these are tools that have been used before in other areas for other procedures. Um, they tend to create a backlash, um, uh, you know, and then it becomes a conflict. And I, I don't think it's necessarily a great way. I would rather orthopedic surgeons do it themselves. But uh, if they're not going to, um, then maybe they need a little nudging. Um, but, yeah, that's, certainly that's another way of doing it is changing the rules around what gets covered. And talking about the knee specifically, back to your uh, practice guideline paper, is there utility in non-degenerative meniscal repairs or orthoscopic surgery for the meniscus, specifically when there's not degeneration in the, uh, you know, joint cartilage or the articular cartilage, or is even that now being refuted? Yeah, I think that we don't have good evidence on that because a lot of the studies that have been done have been done in um, degenerative tears. Uh, not all of them. Some of them have included uh, traumatic tears and still shown no difference. And I'd say um, that arthroscopy is probably less effective than we think even for traumatic tears. Now, there are studies underway at the moment specifically looking at uh, traumatic non-degenerative tears in younger patients and the effect of knee arthroscopy. So we'll have to wait until those studies come out before we know for sure. Um, I think there is still a role for arthroscopy, which is why there's a problem with completely banning it because there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. Um, and if somebody has a very large meniscus tear where the meniscus has torn so much that it's now displaced and jamming in the joint um, and it's blocking the knee from straightening out, um, then an arthroscopy can be very effective at removing that fragment and having the knee straighten out again. You know, that's, a, that's one of the classic reasons for doing a, an arthroscopy and it's one of the reasons that surgeons always bring up whenever I give a talk saying we're doing too many arthroscopies you know it doesn't work and they'll say um, yeah but what about the locked knee you know we have to do it for the locked knee uh, my answer is yeah but that's like you know one percent of all knee arthroscopies if, if that's your answer, then that's fine. Stop doing it in 99% of the time instead of 100% of the time. Um, so it, it's, you know, there probably are reasons to do an arthroscopy, but they're not, uh, uh, they're not that strong. And we're still waiting for more evidence to come regarding younger people and traumatic tears. I was going to follow up with, the, what would be the exceptions where you would recommend an orth, uh, orthoscopic surgery? And it sounds like you just recommended one. Is that with the joint locking, is that what you would describe as quote unquote mechanical symptoms? And is that typically how mechanical symptoms are described in the literature or do they try to extrapolate even beyond that to support the narrative? Yeah, so mechanical symptoms, the, the whole term mechanical symptoms is a problem because it's not defined. Um, and anybody with a degenerative knee will have mechanical symptoms. I mean, does it hurt when you move it? Do you get clicking occasionally? Does it catch you? Um, 
you know, a yes on any of those questions means that you've got mechanical symptoms. And that's being used as justification to do an arthroscopy, but it's not justified because the the evidence is that arthroscopy does not help. Um, but uh, you know, the, a locked knee is different to a locking knee. So if somebody's knee is locked and they can't straighten it, um, then you're looking at um, that's something that's a that, that's a real problem where the patient can't walk. Um, uh, properly and you can help them um, but intermittent locking yeah maybe if it's a big problem with function that it's interfering with activities and it's not getting better and there's a clear cause for the locking seen on imaging then arthroscopy is quite reasonable uh, to do in that situation um, but we've got to get away from justifying it just for uh, quote mechanical symptoms unquote at this point, is that the only scenario where you feel that particular surgery is warranted in a locked knee? And then the, and you kind of put it earlier, whereas other, the other 99% of those scenarios that are typically, you know, given that surgery is, is given are not warranted. Uh, yeah, largely. I think a, a recurrently locking or a locked knee, you know, I would do an arthroscopy. You know, I still do the arthroscopies occasionally. Um, and, and there's other reasons outside of uh, injury and sports. Um, things like an infected knee we would normally treat with an arthroscopy to wash it out, for example. And the other, uh, other related reasons, like when you're doing a ligament reconstruction, uh, they're normally done arthroscopically. But I kind of count that as, as different. You know, that's using an arthroscope to help you do a, a, a different procedure. But when you're talking about people with sore knees, um, then, then um, by far the majority of knee arthroscopies don't need to be done. What are your thoughts on, this is kind of a tangent, but in, in professional sports where the thought is like, get them back on the field as soon as possible, there's millions of dollars on the line here. The, is the surgery, is that what's getting them back on the field sooner? Or is there a placebo effect uh, at play here as well? Uh, uh, it kind of depends on what's what they're out for, you know, and if they've got like a, a massive meniscus tear that's, that's, like we said before, locked their knee, then, um, yeah, by all means, do an arthroscopy and get them back on the field straight away. Um, you know, and, and you're talking about a different world. You're talking about people who are earning... Uh, you know, big money, it's not, it's less reasonable for them to say, well, look, just go away and just see what happens to it over the next few weeks, you know, come back and see me in a month. Um, so I guess that's a different situation. But, uh, um, you know, you've got to realize that there's not only, there's downsides to doing arthroscopy, and the downsides are that there's a cost and that there's risks. Um, and the cost is not inconsequential. I mean, it's only a day-only procedure, but it still involves, um, you know, operating uh, room costs and hospital costs and surgeons' costs and equipment costs. Uh, and you're talking about thousands of dollars. And then you 
you know, add up the fact that there's millions of these being done every year and the numbers suddenly get big and we're all paying for it. You know, we just think, well, that's fine if somebody wants to go off and pay for it and get a meoscopy. It's their own body. They can do what they want. But they're not paying for it. We're paying for it. It doesn't matter whether you're in a system that has public health insurance or private health insurance. Some We're all paying for it. You know, we're paying for it through taxes or premiums, but we're paying for it. And that money could be used better on more effective treatments. But there's also risks. Um, you know, occasionally it's not common, but occasionally, and I've seen it, people get an infection from having an arthroscopy or they get a clot in the leg and that can cause problems. You know, occasionally people have uh, negative effects from arthroscopy. And there's also a problem with the damage that the arthroscopy does to the joint surface as well, because there's always a lot of scratching and scuffing of the articular surface, removing more of the meniscus than is required, removes an important shock absorber in the knee, and that can cause problems. And so there are downsides to arthroscopy, and people need to appreciate that. Dr. Harris, I do want to circle back real quick because I know we're probably going to get questions on this from our listeners. Um, if you could kind of just walk us through maybe a case with a locked knee versus uh, mechanical symptoms, is the idea that the knee is fixated in flexion and even if you give it, uh, and maybe you could discuss this as well, a certain amount of waiting time or active movement drills that it just doesn't improve and it stays fixated? Or at what point is the decision made that this is a locked knee that's not going to improve. Yeah, so when you have a patient with a locked knee, the, the first thing to do would normally be imaging to look for a reason. Now, if the imaging, which is nearly always an MRI scan, if the, if the imaging shows that there is what we call a bucket handle tear of the meniscus, so the back half of the meniscus has flipped over and is now jammed in the front of the knee and is blocking it from straightening, just like if you put a, a, a penny or something in the hinge of a door, it won't show, it won't close properly, um, then, you know, you've got a problem that, that probably won't get better. Um, and it is reasonable to, you know, maybe watch the patient for a few days but it's very uncomfortable for the patient. And if within a few days it has not uh, unlocked, then that case would get an arthroscopy just about every time anywhere in the world. So that's the, that's the clear case. At the other end of the spectrum is the patient with mechanical symptoms where they say, oh, yeah, my knee locks. And you go, well, what does that mean? They go, well, it kind of just catches every now and then. I, I feel a click in the knee and... Um, Sometimes it's it, it's a bit stiff to move. That's a different thing. And and if you do imaging on that patient, not that you need to, but uh, if well, if you do a plain X-ray and that patient's got osteoarthritis of the knee, um, they're very unlikely to have a bucket handle meniscus tear, and they're very likely to have mechanical symptoms from the osteoarthritis. That patient will not benefit from a knee arthroscopy, despite what sounds like a good idea and this is the problem with a lot of surgery uh, a lot of the stuff we do sounds good uh, but that isn't enough anymore there's so many things that used to sound good have were later shown to be ineffective so um, the fact that it sounds good isn't enough if somebody's got uh, mechanical symptoms in their knee and they've got osteoarthritis they don't need an arthroscopy 
is it feasible to say that the person could have a bucket handle tear and have intermittent locking but still not need arthroscopy? Yeah, so this is a, a gray zone then. You've got somebody with a bucket handle tear whose knee is not locked, but occasionally it does, and then they kind of manipulate their knee and it unlocks again. Um, if that occurs frequently and it interferes with their activities, then it's reasonable to remove that fragment. Uh, and so an arthroscopy is still indicated for that. But we're still, you know, I think we're spending a lot of time talking about something that would take up a very small fraction of all the knee arthroscopies in the world that are done. Yeah, and, and I know like um, Savonin put out an article, Arthroscopic Partial Metastectomy Versus Placebo Surgery for de Degenerative Meniscus Tear to Your Follow-Up randomized controlled trial where he kind of goes after the mechanical symptoms as well as the unstable tears narratives. And typically the unstable tears, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is usually the bucket handle tear that's the narrative people are supplied. Yeah, but it, it, most tears are not bucket handle tears. They're, they're uh, uncommon. Yeah. I mean, most people over 50 will have a meniscal tear on MRI, and a lot of them won't have knee pain. In fact, I think most people with a meniscus tear won't have pain in the knee, and they won't have a bucket handle tear. So tears of the meniscus are very common, um, and the older you get, the more likely you are to have them. Um, but the correlation between having a tear and having pain is very poor. And I think that I've got a couple questions to follow up on that because your point was, you know, we're talking about something that's a small percentage of, of when it would actually be indicated. And so then on the flip side, when the majority of these cases in which surgery is not indicated, what are your general recommendations for the patient from there? Are you offering, do you have a, a team of rehab specialists that you trust? Is, is, are the rehab uh, professionals kind of your go-to from that point? Um, yeah, but not always. So um, what I do is I explain to patients who have degenerative knees and, and largely they have, you know, they have changes of osteoarthritis, a lot of these patients. And whenever you get osteoarthritis, you get meniscus extrusion, meniscus displacement and tears. It's just part of the deal with osteoarthritis. Um, so I explain to the patients that arthroscopy won't work and, and, by the way, a lot of surgeons say at this point, they say, oh, but the surgeon demands it or the primary care practitioner has told them that they need it. Um, I don't buy that for a minute. You know, if a patient comes to me and they say, look, I had a scan and I, and I read the report and it says that there's a meniscus tear in there, uh, I want to have a knee arthroscopy. I explain to them that having a knee arthroscopy is no more effective than pretending to have it um, and that there's no evidence to support it and they'd be better off if they don't have it. Then the patient says, well, in that case, I don't want it. You know, they're, they're not, patients aren't stupid. It's easy to say, well, the patient wanted it, therefore I just did it. Uh, that's not good enough. You know, we shouldn't be doing ineffective treatments just because the patient thinks it's effective. We need to educate the patient. So what I do tell them, I, I first of all reassure them they have a common condition, um, that they're probably just going through an acute exacerbation, which will settle down over time. They don't necessarily need to have it treated. Um, 
if it has been a problem that has been there for some time or it is particularly bothersome, uh, then I will treat it. And the, the three mainstays of treatment for degenerative uh, changes in the knee are um, uh, activity, so that could be the form of regular exercise or specific physical therapy, um, and I can refer them to a physical therapist to, to look at that. Um, weight loss is another big thing, and a lot of the patients I see uh, are very much overweight, and so uh, often that's dismissed. You know, we say, well, I need to lose weight, and they say, well, I can't because my knee's sore and I can't exercise. You have to sit down and explain to people there's other ways of losing weight, like eating less, and um, explain to them that when they do lose weight, their knee will feel better. And there is some evidence that, you know, for every uh, so many pounds that people lose, uh, their knee pain will improve by so much. So, you know, there's, there's good evidence if they lose weight, their knee will get better. Um, and then the other thing is just simple analgesics or anti-inflammatory medication or anti-inflammatory gels or, or creams that they can use, uh, particularly when they're, they're doing some activity that particularly exacerbates the knee, like if they're going to go around and have a full round of golf or something like that, they can try that first. Um, so it's, it's medication, weight loss, and exercise are the three main treatments that I recommend. Dr. Harris, do you find, because um, I know there's a lot of qualitative studies coming out on the narratives that we supply patients and how that impacts outcomes. Once that bell's been rung with, you know, we have this image on file that shows this meniscus tear, do you find it's hard to unring that bell once it's in the patient's head? Um, no, not really. And and I have heard that, and this is what surgeons say. Um and, and this is why there is uh, um, an argument for people with degenerative conditions for doctors not to order the imaging. If you've got somebody with, with knee pain and a plain X-ray that, or, or an examination that shows clearly that they have osteoarthritis, you don't need to do any more imaging for that patient because that imaging is going to show things that the patient's going to latch on to. Um, so that is a that is an argument, but I haven't found that it's a particular problem once I've explained to the patient that the uh, what they're seeing on the image is just one of many things. You know, there'll be small bone spurs, loss of articular cartilage. Um, you know, there'll be lots of bone bruising and lots of other changes on the MRI. Um, but these are uh, not necessarily causing the pain, they're just part of the overall picture. I mean, when somebody has bone spurs or osteophytes from osteoarthritis, we don't go in and cut them out because they're not causing the pain. And it's the same thing with the meniscal extrusion or the meniscal tear that's associated with osteoarthritis. It's just part of the picture. Their knee's so far gone but that, that that small tear that they're seeing in that corner of their knee that's just a small part of the big picture. And if you explain that to patients, I haven't had a problem with them, you know, looking at me suspiciously, thinking I'm trying to uh, convince them of something that's not true. Um, and the other thing that I can do as a surgeon is, uh, and it's easier for me as a surgeon, is I can say, look, I would love to operate on you. I get paid very well to operate on you. I'll take your money. You know, it's, it's great for me. It's great for my kids. 
but it won't help you, and therefore I'm not going to recommend it. Uh, and then they can see that, well, okay, maybe you know he's got lots of reasons to operate on me, but he, he still isn't, um, so maybe it isn't effective. I love that last part because I had a question about the financial aspect from your colleague's standpoint. I, Mike and I are rehab professionals, and it, we're, we're pushing this evidence-based approach and, and kind of... Um, you know, questioning a lot of the modalities and things that are used in our field. And a, the common rebuttal that we get is, well, you're, you're, you're sending our patients out the door. You know, you're sending your business out the door for you're, you're chopping off all of these potential options for treatment. You know, what are we left with? So my question to you is, do you get pushback from your colleagues in regards to, you know, if, if you're telling patients, if we can't do these orthoscopic surgeries, you know, that's a huge part of our uh, clientele or our, our business. What's the rebuttal to that type of argument for the surgery? Well, that's easy to rebut because if, if your argument is that you're doing it because it's a big part of your practice, you know, and I've, I've known surgeons who basically are arthroscopists. I mean, this is, they don't do knee replacements. They don't do fractures. They just do knee arthroscopies. That's their whole practice. Um, it, it's difficult to say to them, well, your whole practice is, uh, you know, largely based on a sham and you now only need to work one day a week. Um, you know, that's, you can understand how that would be hard for them to take. But, um, there's plenty of other, in general, there's plenty of other ways for orthopedic surgeons to make money. You know, they don't have to do things that are ineffective. Um, I, I don't think that orthopedic surgeons are out there doing the arthroscopies, knowing them to be ineffective. I think that they think that they're effective or that they hope that they're effective or they think that, well, it might not be effective, but this patient's been grumbling along for a while and we may as well give it a go. Um, but, you know, so consciously I don't think surgeons are out there doing this to make money. And the, the example I give is that I don't think homeopaths wake up every day thinking, oh, another great day, I'm going to go and rip off another 20 customers by selling them this rubbish, um, selling them water. Um, they don't think like that. They think it works. Um, and I think that's the the reason behind most surgeons doing it. And the reason why surgeons have practices where they do lots of knee arthroscopy is because they think it works. That's what got them into that area in the first place and not into some other area. Um, so you just have to, you just have to have the argument. You have to have the discussion. Um, and yeah, I have had pushback from surgeons who are, um, high volume arthroscopists, uh, in particular. Um, but by and large, my message has been well received. Um, and, and I've got good evidence now for that because of the large practice change that we've seen in Australia where the arthroscopy rates have continued to fall for six or seven years, year on year. They've fallen and they're still falling. So, um, you know, I think the message has been, has been heard. Um, I don't know how to get that message heard everywhere. Um, and in America, I don't know, maybe it has been heard. I haven't seen recent evidence from America on the arthroscopy rates. Well, we're trying to make it heard. Mike, are you aware of any <laughs> evidence on that? 
Yeah, I was just running that through my head. I think the last time I saw evidence on it, let me see. I want to say it was like 2012 or 2013, but it was still considered the highest orthopedic ambulatory surgery occurring in the U.S. to date, uh, if, I, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's like anecdotally seeing it in my local area. I still see it really regularly. Um, so I don't think that they're decreasing. Obviously, that's just kind of narrow framing it. But uh, I don't know what it would take to shift it in the States and make and make a difference. We're hoping, and, and Quinn and I both try to do this, especially with rehab professionals, is education. We both teach seminars and kind of travel around and talk about what is it, what does it mean to be evidence-based and how do you integrate it into clinical practice. Uh, and a lot of what I've heard you say today is uh, like eerily similar to um, my profession, which is as a chiropractor, uh, which was substantiated on a lot of things that have zero evidential support and nothing more than conjecture. And then trying to tell that profession, you know, there's other ways we could be doing this and that we're a group of people who are a profession that can seek out interventions that are evidence-based. Like we don't have to be um, completely anchored to one way of doing things. Uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about it from the orthopedic perspective. Yeah, Dr. Um, yeah. Go, no, you go ahead. Yeah, no, no. That's, that's I'm just sort of while I'm talking to you, I'm looking up uh, the internet, and there is an article here about uh, knee arthroscopy rates in the U.S. Uh, up to from 1998 to 2006, showing that they increased uh, over that time. Um, arthroscopies for osteoarthritis with a meniscus tear uh, increased. Um, uh, arthroscopies for meniscus tears increased. Um, osteo, uh, arthroscopies for osteoarthritis, which was only 10% of them, 10.6%, decreased to 7.2%. Um, but that's like, uh, but overall, the rates are actually increasing. Uh, so that's interesting. Well, there you go. We're nailing it over here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised by that in the slightest. Yeah. Dr. Harris, are you. Are you seeing similar trends in other parts of the body with other common surgeries in that there's mounting evidence to question common orthopedic surgeries that are being done for the back, the shoulder, hip, that type of thing? Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, we've been focused on arthroscopy, but um, there's changes happening all the time where evidence is being generated and uh, um, uh, showing things to be ineffective and it's, and it's changing practice. Um, so my particular area of specialty is um, uh, orthopedic trauma. Um, and so, for example, there's been long debates about um clavicle fractures, whether they should be internally fixed or not. Um, uh, dislocations of the acromioclavicular joint is another one. That's a fairly common injury. And recent evidence from a large multicenter study in Canada um, showed that surgery for that condition is, is no better or probably inferior than just leaving it alone. Um, and so... For a while now, I've treated all of those injuries non-operatively and so have a lot of my colleagues as well. So that's something where we're getting clearer evidence and it's guiding practice. Um, but uh, uh, um, on a larger scale, yeah, things like spine surgery are also very common and there's a lot of debate at the moment about the role for spine fusion surgery. Uh, for back pain, where it's been shown in trials comparing it to physical therapy that it's uh, um, 
no no has no benefit and probably has uh, more complications and more costs. Um, but um, that's something that has not necessarily changed, and the rates. Uh, in many countries, including the US and including Australia, uh, the rates of spine fusion surgery have been increasing for some time. And I think that's an area that really needs to be addressed because um, it's not like an arthroscopy, which is a relatively safe procedure, um, relatively low cost compared to other operations. With spine fusion surgery, you've got a high-risk, very high-cost procedure um you know it's associated with significant complications and probably doesn't benefit the patient so there we have a huge problem but um again you're getting to the financial thing i mean the financial rewards for doing um uh spine fusion are uh, enormous for the for the supplier of the implants for the for industry uh for the surgeon for the surgical team, the the anaesthetists, the uh, assistants, um, and also for the hospital. Um, and hospitals make a lot of money out of doing big procedures like this. Um, so the hospitals aren't in a hurry to find out that they're not effective because that's how they make their money. And so it's it's a bit like everybody wins with these things. Whenever you have these big operations, um, you know, if, if somebody were to come out with a definitive study and say spine fusion surgery does not help for back pain, um, you'd get a lot of angry people because everybody's making money off this. So everybody benefits but the patient is what you're saying. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Good. Yeah. And as long as it's covered by insurance, at least the patient's not out of pocket. There you go. Um, yeah. If you had parting messages, you know, if we're talking to our colleagues uh, or you're just talking to your field, your elevator pitch to bridge the evidence practice gap, what is that in a nutshell? You know, what are, if we had to oversimplify the problem in, in bullet point format, what steps do we need to take to overcome some of these hurdles? Okay, we need to apply the same rules and the same evidentiary bar that we apply to drugs to procedures. You know, in a nutshell, it should be no proof, no practice. We shouldn't be doing things that don't have evidence behind them. Um, we should be, the starting point should be, okay, we've got a procedure that we think works, let's do a study and find out if it works, and then let's do it. And so we recently just wrote a paper on um, spine fusion for, uh, uh, for back pain, and the conclusion was that we shouldn't be doing this procedure unless we're doing it as part of a trial. And there's precedent for this where um, new procedures have come out and the insurance uh, has said, look, there's no evidence for this. You can't just go around doing this operation all across the country, um, and the insurers have said, okay, we're not going to pay for this unless you, you do it. So in other words, we'll pay for it. You want to do the procedure? We'll pay for it. We'll only pay for it if it's part of a trial to find out if it works or not. Um, and so that's what we should be doing. We should be doing trials on these treatments to find out if they work. 
and then you can roll them out. Don't roll them out and find out in uh, the case of arthroscopy 30 years later that it didn't work. I think that's a message that has relevance to all of our fields. Love that. Mike, anything to add? Any parting thoughts for Dr. Harris? No, I mean, I think um, it's, it's been great talking with you. I've enjoyed listening to kind of your take on things as far as it goes with evidence-based practice and uh, what we see with arthroscopies for the knee. Um, and just like Quinn said, a lot of what you said uh, transcends all party lines, so to speak, and uh, we should be having that that standard of evidence needed for every profession out there that's dealing with patient treatment. Um, so it's just good to hear that that's kind of what's emerging in all fields. Yeah, it's emerging. It's just emerging slowly. Right. I, I wish I, we regularly chat, like, how can we make this happen faster? And it's like, well, do we yeah. go? Is it at the institutional yeah. level? Do we talk to people at academics? Or how do we integrate this? Because, I mean, the EBM movement's been going on since easily the 90s with, uh, with Sackett. Yeah. So it's, it's just slow. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Yeah. Harris, where can people find out more about you? Where, where can they connect with you? Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess they can email me if they want. Uh, you can find me on the internet pretty easily. Um, just type in like Ian Harris Orthopedics, something like that. You'll get me. Um, uh, and, and the other thing is to, uh, if, if you want to know my take on things, it's pretty well summarized in my book. Um, surgery, the ultimate placebo. You can get that anywhere and it's, it just really takes you through my thinking. Um, and so I even tell that to colleagues when they, they want to understand where I'm coming from. I just say, just go read the book because I couldn't be bothered explaining it because <laughs> um, it, it's all in there. You're also on Twitter, Dr. Harris? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter as, um, as uh, uh, Dr. Skeptic. So I'll give you my Twitter handle is um at dr doubter so d-o-c-t-o-r-d-o-u-b-t-e-r um, oh, i love it that's comes, awesome <laughs> yeah it comes up as uh as uh um the uh doctor like dr skeptic s-k-e-p-t-i-c uh so that's where i tweet stuff about you know evidence and and what works and what doesn't in medicine in general Well, nice. Dr. Harris, it was an honor to have you on. We really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks, Dr. Harris. See you. Thanks, everyone.